Good morning. Blueprint Church family, I'm glad to be here with you. My name is Wesley, as Mitchell mentioned earlier, and I'm a member here. Normally, you see me over there or over there, and now today I'm over here, right? So you might recognize the same bald guy that plays guitar. We'll be preaching today. Dahadi's out of town, and he asked me if I would bring the message from Matthew chapter 21, because today we celebrate Palm Sunday. Now, uh, Palm Sunday is composed of kind of a strange set of events in Matthew's gospel. And so our main text is going to be verses 1 to 11, the triumphal entry. I think we're going to need to go on a little bit of a journey to understand it. So I kind of think that we need to think of verses 1 through 11 as a door. But we're going to find that verses 18 to 22, they kind of slap a lock on the door. Fortunately, though, Matthew has stashed a key for us in verses 28 to 32. So there you have it. A door, a lock, and a key. So we're going to have to take a little bit of a journey. So after we pray... I'll begin in verses 28 to 32, because we got to grab the key. Then we'll take a short trip over to verses 18 to 22, where we'll find the lock. And then finally, we'll come to verses 1 to 17 and see how to open the door. Now, that's a good bit of text, so we're going to have to move quickly. But I hope you're up for a quick hike or maybe a power walk along the Beltline, however you want to conceive of this. But as we go, I think you're going to see some lovely places to camp out at. We don't have time for camping today, but I'm hoping that maybe this week you'll go back and spend some time in these places you see along the way. Now, if you're ready, let's pray, and then we'll begin. Father, open our eyes to see that you're already patiently waiting on us to turn our hearts to you. Open our ears to hear your loving invitation to us to be formed by your love and your grace. Open our hearts to trust you and entrust our lives to you. Please use your word now to lead, guide, and direct us by your Holy Spirit to be formed into the image of Christ. In whose name we pray, amen, amen. So, Let's go over to verse 28, and let's begin. We're going to pick up in the middle of a conversation. Jesus is having a conversation with the temple officials, and he tells them this very short parable, but it's part of the key that we need to get a hold of. So we're starting there. Verse 28. What do you think, Jesus says? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, my son, go work in the vineyard today. The son answered, I don't want to. But later, he changed his mind, and he went. Then the man goes to the other son, and he says the same thing. I will, sir, the son answered. But he didn't go. Which of the two, Jesus said, did his father's will? The people listening said, the first. And Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, Tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you will. 
For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. Tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. But you, when you saw it, didn't even change your minds then and believe what he was saying. So Jesus gives this, this parable. It's actually the first of a series of parables or a cycle of parables to really explain to the temple officials who he is and what he's doing. And I think it's a key that we need to grab a hold of to see what the rest of the text has for us. Now, first of all, I want you to see this. The father in this parable obviously has to represent God because neither of these sons gets yelled at, right? I mean, just, I don't know if you've, been in a situation before where you've seen a parent ask a child to do something and the child says, I don't want to. And there's like no follow-up, right? Not even a, do you want to, do, do you want to have a do-over, right? Or, or a, you get your stuff, you get out there in the vineyard right now. There's none of that. And I think that's important because you see the patience of the father. The father patiently waits for this first child to come to its senses. Now I say child because in the original text, the word isn't son, the word is actually child. It's gender nonspecific. I think that's important. I think Jesus does that sometimes because he lets us all, male or female, see ourselves in the text. So the second child, uh, the first child shows us something important that I want us to look at before we move on. Look at what the child does. The father says, I need you to do this. This child immediately responds with the truth. I don't want to. That's the truth. And by the way, that word there, I don't want to, it implies, so I ain't gonna. <laughs> don't want to, won't. But that confession, the honesty of that confession, gives space with the patience of the Father for resignation. Huh. You know what? I need to do what dad asked. I'll go. So the first child shows us what confession, resignation, and repentance looks like. It's a process of turning to the will of the father and doing that. The second child, though, shows us what superficial worship looks like. The Greek is wonderful because it really emphasizes the I in this passage. It's like you see that second child is like the child that's really trying to get the approval. Like, oh, he won't go. I'll go. I'll be the one that shows you who's the good kid. But in that lip service, there's no heart of following through. There was no intention of actually going. And there's no thinking better of it. The significance of this story is what Jesus says next. Sounds hard, sounds harsh, but you have to see that Jesus is pointing out that the temple officials are missing the point of what it means to worship God. God is after changed hearts. That is the emphasis of this text. And even more so, changed hearts show that God is at work. Jesus says, in verse 32, the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe John. They believed John's message, but when you saw it, in other words, when you saw their changed lives, when you saw their hearts being changed, it didn't do anything to you. In other words, you didn't see that as evidence that God was working. 
So you've missed the whole point. So that's the key we need to grab onto. This idea of confession, honest confession, that leads to resignation and repentance, and the fact that changed hearts show that God is working. Let's hold on to that, and let's go back to verse 18. Sometimes we call this crawfishing through the text as we go backwards. Now, I grew up calling them crawdads. Maybe you heard them called crayfish, but they swim backwards. That's the point. Verse 18, let's go there. Early in the morning, as he was returning to the city, Jesus was hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he went up to it, and he found nothing on it but leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. At once, the tree shriveled up. When the disciples saw it, they were amazed. They said, how did the fig tree wither up so quickly? Jesus answered and said, let me tell you something true. If you have faith and do not doubt, you'll not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you tell this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, it'll be done. And if you believe, you'll receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Now that's a lock if I've ever seen one. There's some mystery here. What does this mean? Well, let's see what's in the text and then apply a key to it. First of all, we've got to understand the fig tree is an object lesson. It's not a magic trick. This is in the prophetic tradition of doing things in public places that people would see and go, what in the world is going on? And then a lesson comes from it, okay? So Jesus is not just getting salty at a fig tree that had no figs. He's trying to demonstrate there's an important spiritual reality I'm showing you. Jesus goes to the tree. There's no fruit on the tree. And it gets a curse. What we're going to see when we go back to the first part of the text, verses 1 to 17, the day before, Jesus went to the temple. And literally, there was no fruit in the temple. The point of the temple was completely missed. The keepers and officials of the temple, you remember, they've forgotten that the point of the temple was to see hearts changed. And so, if you went to the temple and there was no fruit in the temple, what does that mean? The temple is under a curse. It's doomed. And it's going to wither up and disappear. And that then is the point of what Jesus says next. Okay? The mountain is a statement about the temple, not about challenges in life, okay? I love the song that we just sing, sung about, you know, God can move the mountains. That's an application of this text, but that's not what Jesus is saying. He's not speaking in generalities. It's not a metaphor. Where he's standing on the road back to Jerusalem, they can literally see one mountain in front of them, and that is Mount Zion. And on that mountain is the temple. And when he uses the word this, it's the kind of word that you use when you're pointing to something. He says, you can say to this mountain right here with the temple on top, go jump in a lake. Why? Because the temple is under a curse. It's going to shrivel up and die. And so it's no longer necessary. It's very similar to what Jesus says to the woman at the well. 
in John chapter 4. She says, oh, you're a prophet. Tell me, uh, is it our mountain or your mountain? Which mountain is the right mountain to worship God on? And he says, lady, the time is coming. No, it's right now. Where worshiping God is not a matter of geospatial location. Either mountain is irrelevant. God is to be worshiped in spirit and in truth everywhere at all times. So if Jesus is mainly talking about the temple and that it's lost its meaning, it's lost its purpose, what's this last bit about prayer? If you believe, you'll receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Do you see the belief statement? Belief is a word that in the New Testament also means trust. I think that we sometimes get belief to be like a head thing and not in the same sense of trust, like in a trusting relationship, right? I trust my heart to my wife that she won't harm me when I tell her what's going on with me, that she won't use my life and my story against me to manipulate me. That's trust. This word that Jesus uses is about trust. You see, prayer, the prayer that Jesus is talking about here in this context, it's a challenge to trust him no matter what. It's not a cheat code for prosperity. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't want to give us things. It doesn't mean that he doesn't want us to ask for things. But the question is, when we ask, are we going to trust him in the results? Okay, now we found the lock. We've got a key to place in that. What does that look like? Well, in our asking and in our prayer, are we coming with honest confession? Till we get to the point of resignation, to repentance and obedience? Or are we just asking for things to be done the way we want them, when we want them? With that in our hearts and minds, now we can go to the door. Verse 1, the beginning of this passage. When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples telling them, go into the village ahead of you. At once, you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. And I think I just need to stop there for a minute because it's very obvious that Jesus made plans without letting his disciples know. Um, does that feel like life to you? Jesus is making plans and he's not letting me know what his plans are. Just wanted to point that out. That was for free. <laughs> Let's move on, verse 4. This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, see, your kingdom is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they laid their clothes on them, and he sat on them. 
A very large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from trees and spreading them on the road. Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar saying, who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. So what does this mean? Well, first of all, if we go back to verses three and four and five as well, we see that Jesus is more concerned about prophetic imagination than image. He rides in on a donkey. It's a fulfillment of scripture, but it's also a statement of something. I was trying to figure out and talk to my wife this week, like, how could I bring it into like today's, like what vehicle would Jesus use if he was rolling into Jerusalem today? And at first I was like, maybe a Honda Civic. And she was like, those are kind of nice. I'm like, yeah, you're right. She's like, what about a a Ford Taurus? And I'm like, honey, I don't think they make those anymore. Um, But maybe a base model Ford Taurus. But I think the point is, this is a pack animal. Jesus apparently would have chosen a late model contractor vehicle, white, nondescript, maybe a painter's van, something common, something that states, I'm here with you, but I'm not here above you. It doesn't really matter what vehicle we pick in our imagination. The main thing is that he doesn't roll in a Humvee. He doesn't roll in an armored personnel carrier. You see, brothers and sisters, horses were machines of war. And he didn't pick a horse. He picked a donkey, a common pack animal. Because the scripture is very clear. Behold, he's coming to you gentle and humble. It's important Because Jesus in his incarnation, Jesus in his ministry, Jesus in this moment, and Jesus in the cross rejects power for humility over and over and over again, which is his vocation. And it's also ours. So however you imagine it, Jesus rolls into Jerusalem, humble, gentle. But what the crowds do, they pick their symbols too. And they pick them very carefully. The cloaks on the road, you can go to 2 Kings chapter 9 and you can see what that's all about. This is a symbol of loyalty. Hey, we're with you. We're with you for what? The branches on the ground are also a very specific symbol Now, you'll have to maybe use an online reference because unless you have a Bible with the Apocrypha in it, you'll need to go find uh, 2 Maccabees to understand what's going on here. 2 Maccabees chapter 12, you see these branches on the road are a very specific symbol. They are communicating to Jesus, we want you to do for us what Judas Maccabeus did for Israel back when he kicked all the pagans out by military force. Make Israel great again and do it by force, by military intervention. In other words, we're loyal to you. You're going to get an army. 
We gonna set ourselves free? Let's take down Rome. Let's do it our way. Because you see, the, the shouts of the crowd, they have desperation in it. Hosanna means save us. Get me out of this. Because there's oppression, there's wrong, there's evil. A Roman soldier can just come up to you and say, take this, my pack, my gear, carry it a mile for me. And you have no choice. You can walk into a town that one day was free to walk into, but today, no, you have to pay a tax to get in here. But yesterday it was free. Not anymore. Oppression everywhere. So you have to understand the cries for Hosanna, they make sense. But they're loaded with expectations. Save us, but save us the way we want to be saved. Be our hero the way we want to be a hero because they call him son of David. That's a title that means Messiah. If you're going to be the king, we want you to act like a king, our kind of king. Be the kind of hero we want you to be. But Jesus riding in on a donkey is a symbol as well that says, no. That's not how I'm going to save you. Even though you shout, Hosanna in the highest, which means save us to the uttermost. He says no to the way that they want salvation. But what we're going to see is there's a deeper yes that he has waiting for them. By the way, the crowd's explanation of who Jesus is is a misdiagnosis, but if you've seen The Masked Singer, then you know that there's a thing called being Ken Jong wrong. They're not Ken Jong wrong, but they don't know exactly who this is. Jesus was a prophet, but he was so much more. And that's what the next passage shows to us. Look at verse 12. Jesus crashes the temple party. Jesus went into the temple and he threw out all those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. Thieves is not the right word there. We'll come back to that. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonders that he did and the children especially shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were livid and said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? Jesus replied, yes. Have you never read? You have prepared praise from the mouths of infants and nursing babies. Then he left them and he went out of the city to Bethany, and he spent the night there. It's really interesting. Jesus doesn't head straight to Pilate's HQ or to Herod's palace. When he rolls into Jerusalem, he goes straight to the temple and not to offer up a sacrifice and not to make a big donation to the campus expansion program. He goes in, and I think sometimes we look at, you know, maybe the, 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 the sense of justice that he has toward the, 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 the doves, and I will get to that in a minute. But I think it's very important that you see first what he does the first part of verse 12. He goes into the temple, 
and he throws out all those who are buying and selling. Okay, they're not buying and selling Netflix subscriptions, all right? They're buying and selling animals that are necessary for sacrifice. You see, if you lived especially a far distance from the temple, you wouldn't bring your own animal to be sacrificed to the temple because that animal had to be spotless, blameless, couldn't have anything wrong with it. And the trip, something might happen to the animal on the way. So the temple provided the animals necessary for sacrifice. So you see what Jesus does? He literally puts himself in the middle of the temple and he stops the whole thing. The machinery of the temple comes to a screeching halt. There was supposed to be an endless offering of sacrifices night and day, and they stop. Nobody can carry out temple business. And he puts himself in the middle and shuts the whole thing down. Then he shows us God's heart regarding exploitative systems. He goes to the money changers' tables. He flips them over. Because apparently, whenever a quick buck can be made, that's something that happens. Especially because it's connected to the stools of those who sell doves. Doves were the offering of the poorest people. So Jesus is seeing something in here that these folks are taking advantage of the poorest of the poor by some type of exchange of money and then buying these doves at a marked up price. But that's not what it's all about. Jesus, of course, points out God's heart there. But more importantly, he speaks God's word toward the root of the problem. This place is supposed to be a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of thieves. That's a word to use. It's not the best word. The word here has a different connotation. Maybe a better translation would be, you've made this a rebel base, but some of you are heavy into Star Wars, so that's a good thing. You're like, a rebel base, sweet, yeah. Down with the empire. No, no, no. So let's, change the, let's change the image. You've made this a pirate's cove. See, pirates live in rebellion against all kingdoms. And if you've seen the Disney movie, you know one of their codes is to take what you can and give, come on, somebody, nothing back. Thank you so much. (laughs) Somebody's seen it. Pirates are, they're rebels. They're rebellious. And they're opportunistic. Jesus is calling them out, not just as people who steal, but people who are opposing the very will of God himself. You're rebellious against the God that this temple stands for. And so he puts himself in the middle of the whole system and stops it. You see... Jesus is showing us something very important, that when you reject God's way of peace, the way that Jesus is showing them, riding into town on a donkey, humble and gentle, when you reject God's shalom, a word that means God's design and God's desire, when you reject God's shalom for power and control, 
oppression will always follow. And Jesus is pointing out that these officials are not interested in God's shalom. They're not interested in the transformation of hearts. They just want power and control. So Jesus does something next that's almost like rubbing salt in the wounds. He welcomes in the blind and the lame. Come in here to the place that you're not supposed to be. Now, what's that all about? Well, David, you can read about this in 2 Samuel 5. When David conquered the city of Jerusalem, the original inhabitants, the Jebusites, they were so impressed with their own city and they were so unimpressed with David's army that they put the blind and the lame guards to guard the city, saying, you'll never take us. We're, we're, we're so confident in ourselves, we're putting the blind and the lame. Now, when David did conquer the city, got a little salty and decided no blind, no lame in the city. Jesus vetoes that executive order. And he says, come to me, come into the temple and I'm gonna heal you. Because he has authority over the temple. He has authority over David because he's greater than both. And that's what he's doing and saying in everything that he's done. And in this, you see something beautiful happening. When these temple officials walk through the door and they see this chaotic scene, can you see it? Just think like there's things flipped over. People are probably pressed to the sides like, what is this guy doing? And now there's children singing Ring Around the Rosie in the middle of the temple. It says there's children shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. It, the text doesn't say this, but I, could just, I just imagine some of these children most likely were some of the blind and lame that had been brought to him to be healed. So Jesus has now put himself in the middle of the temple, in the heart of the temple itself, and he's bringing God's heart to the temple. And what happens? These people are being healed and a worship service breaks out. And that's something for us to see. There is no spiritual machinery that works without Jesus in the center of it. Whatever you're trying to cobble together to create some type of spirituality, if Jesus isn't in the center of it, it's not going to work. So he points this out to us. And then, of course, he sets the record straight about who he is. The officials are very upset. Because the children are singing something in the temple that will get you in big trouble. Hosanna to the son of David. That's a title for a king. And Rome doesn't appreciate would-be kings. So the priests come in a little nervous. Shh, don't you hear what they're saying? Yeah, says Jesus. And they're right. I am the son of David, and I've come to save. So what we need to do next is to put it all together. Take the key, put it in the lock, and open the door. How do we do that? I'm so glad you asked. If we go back to verse 29, this is how you take up the key. By taking up the practice of telling the truth through confession. 
This is how we begin. We have to be as honest as Jesus was in Gethsemane. We're going to go there this week. If you read along the, the, the events of Holy Week, Jesus is in the garden. What does Jesus pray? I don't want to. If there's any way, let this cup pass from me, please. Have we exhausted all the options? But then, of course, without sin, he confesses the truth and then resigns to the Father. Not what I want, but your will be done. You see it? We take up that practice of honest confession. Listen, you can go to the Psalms if you need help with this. The psalmists practice this all the time. Go to a place like Psalm 130. Out of the depths have I called unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. What does that mean? God, I feel like I'm drowning. I feel like I'm getting crushed by the water. This is so hard, and I don't want to do this. But I look to the Lord. My soul doth wait for him, and in his word will I trust. Confession that ponders the nature of God and leads to resignation and repentance. Repentance is not always about turning away from sin. It's primarily about turning to God. This is why Jesus in the garden actually does show us repentance. He has no sin to turn away from, but he does have a father to constantly turn to. And he does. Look to the Psalms. Take up the practice of telling the truth honestly of what's going on in our hearts, knowing that a God is inviting us to hear from us and offer us his presence. And that's what we have to do next. Verse 22, the lock. We have to accept Jesus' challenge to trust him and entrust ourselves to him and take on Jesus' offer to answer any prayer. But here's the catch just like we saw in our main passage. The prayer that you offer, Jesus will always answer more than you ask because Jesus is always going to answer more deeply than we know to ask. We have to take stock of our hosannas. What are we asking God for? What are we asking him to do? so that we can trust that Jesus will almost always answer a deeper need than the one you can voice. And I don't like that. Can I be honest with you? I'm just like the crowd. I want my Hosanna to be answered my way. Save me my way, please, Jesus. Thank you very much. But he rides in on a donkey. Remember, he says no. But does he? Because I'm telling you the truth, that Jesus answered every single Hosanna that day. Remember, they shouted, save us to the uttermost. 
And that's exactly what he does on the cross and through the resurrection. He saves to the uttermost, but they had no conception. They could have never dreamed that he didn't come just to put down Rome, but he came to put down death. They had no imagination that he would come not just to deal with the problems of a ridiculous person like Herod, but that he could actually come and deal with sin. We're being oppressed by these Romans They're pagans. They don't even understand our ways. And Jesus says, no, you're being oppressed by sin. And I'll set you free from that. Brothers and sisters, I'm not taking it lightly as I say this to you because I'm in this with you. Jesus answered every Hosanna that was shouted that day, but Jesus refused to meet a single one of their expectations. I don't like saying that. He did not gather an army, create an insurrection, and put down the Romans. He refused every one of their expectations, but he answered their deepest desires and longings. So I want to encourage you to draw courage from the fact that God has promised his presence no matter what. No matter the answer to your your prayer, whether it's yes, no, or wait, he's promised his presence in the midst of it. And here's what what I'd like us to do. I'd, I'd like us to dare to believe something. And it's hard, and it's hard for me to do, and it's hard for me to ask of you. But would you, would you dare, maybe even this week, to believe that sometimes the confident assurance of the presence of God is the answer to the deepest need in our prayers. <laughs> we were like, but Wesley, that sounds way too spiritual and too pie in the sky because I got bills to pay and mouths to feed. There ain't nothing in this world for free. You're right. And in the middle of the prayer that Jesus gave to us is a prayer for daily bread, Yes. Yes, but maybe, maybe that's something that we can entrust if we make the main point of that prayer our Father, a God that we can trust to provide. Because as one, as one uh, writer says about prayer, daily bread is the prayer. Nutella is optional. And that's a laugh that I need for my own sake, because this is hard. It's hard to really believe that the presence of God could be enough. Because think about it, God's offering his presence and we're like, meh, ooh, tell you ride. New job, relationship. But the presence of God is there, constantly inviting us in to say, maybe I'm your greatest need. And maybe knowing that I I'm here with you and for you and in Christ transforming your heart is the biggest need. So I I want us to take just a couple minutes and silently reflect on a couple of questions. What's your most pressing Hosanna right now? Like if you were there at the first Palm Sunday in the crowd, when you shouted out, Hosanna, what would be behind that? 
What would be the save me now? What's going on with you? What's the most pressing Hosanna right now? And then what would it be like? We're in the, we're in the land of imagination now. What would it be like to take up the practice of honest confession in that area so that you could reach a place of resignation and trust? I just want us to take two minutes, silently consider that. You may need to write things down. You may need to open up a journal or grab a piece of paper to write to reflect, or you may just sit quietly and reflect, whichever is easier for you to do. Two minutes, it might feel like an eternity, but just sit with these questions and reflect together, and then I'll pray to close this out. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information about Blueprint Church, visit us online at blueprintchurch.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Blueprint Church. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday.